Turn with me to John chapter 4. And we're going to continue our series through the book of John. Today, I want to preach two words. And these two words are part of the vision of our church. Um, And I actually want to spend the next few weeks talking about the vision of our church through this passage that I'm going to preach on. The two words I want to talk about is no God. Now, the vision of our church is simple. And if you're if you're new to our church, this is a good time to to jump in um, because the vision of our church is. It's eight words, but it's technically nine because I guess the word a is a word or whatever, but um, eight words. But today we're going to talk about no God. Say no God. That's the whole point of today's sermon. And as we're looking at John chapter four, and and I I just want to say how incredible I believe David did last week walking us through those first six verses. Um, I think that was totally the Lord that brought him in for that message at that time you should go back and listen to it um which i think totally fits with today's what's been happening on the altar today as well it's just so good um but i want us to uh put put a bookmark there in john chapter four because when you're looking at john chapter four what we're going to see time and time again mentioned is a man named jacob and although he's not referenced directly i do want to take time to talk about Jacob because he is important Uh, you can flip over to Genesis chapter 32 and while you're there I want to talk to you for just a second about who Jacob is all right so if if this church thing is new to you no worries all right I got you covered um, because we're learning about the entire Bible through the book of John a while back we talked about a man named Abraham now Abraham is the father of all the Jewish people Sometimes we call them the Jewish people. Sometimes we call them Hebrews. Sometimes we call them Israelites. They're all referring to the same group of people, just in different aspects. So the father of all of them is this man named Abraham, who God told Abraham, he said, get up, move to a different place that you've never been before. I'll show you where to go. And I'm going to make you the father of many nations. One problem. He didn't have any kids. And so through a miracle, he ends up having one son named Isaac. So there's Abraham and Isaac. And Isaac, he had two sons. He had twin sons, and those twins were named Jacob and Esau. So Jacob is the grandson of Abraham, and it's who all the Jewish people will go through. Now, Jacob, he has a name, and his name means trickster. How many know all names have a meaning? Right. Um, I remember once I was teaching a Sunday school class and we were talking about name meanings. Because in the Bible, especially a name will have a meaning that is more than just the meaning. Like it's got a lot that goes with it. So we're like, it'd be cool to tell all these. We were teaching this fourth and fifth grade Sunday class. And um, we're like, it'd be cool to tell the kids what their names mean. And we had this this baby book that you could flip through. This is before we had smartphones. Right. So we had a book. And uh, we had to flip through it. And it'd be cool to tell the kids what their names mean, right? And so that's what we did for the Sunday school class. We were going through telling the kids all the things their names mean. And while we were in the class, I had to run out to get something from the car. So I ran out to the car. And when I came back in, 
Uh, and while I was gone, the other teacher was just going through all the kids' names and whatever. When I came back in, there was this little kid in the corner just sobbing, just sobbing. And uh, I was like, what is wrong with Brendan? That was the kid's name. Well, not Brennan. It's important. We Brendan, B-R-E-N-D-A-N. What's wrong with Brendan? And the other teacher just looked down at the book and then looked up at me kind of apologetically. And then one of the other kids somewhat kindly said, his name means stinky hair. <laughs> like, why did you tell him that? That's, that's the kind of thing. Oh, what's your name? Brendan? Okay. Oh, your name means courageous. I mean, you, that's, that's a totally the time where you lie in church. It's appropriate. Anyway, he cried and cried and cried. Poor Brendan. Forever scarred by his Sunday school class. Jacob, though, it means trickster. And can I tell you, Jacob was a trickster. In fact, when he was born, he was born second. But it's told that when he was born, he was actually hanging on to the heel of his older brother. Like, I'm going to take what's yours. In chapter 27, we see that he, tri- or sorry, in chapter 25 of Genesis, you don't have to go there, we find that he tricks his brother into selling him his birthright. Like, like everything his brother, his older brother would inherit it, because older brothers inherited more stuff back then, as they still should. I'm just kidding. Says I'm for those who don't know, I'm the oldest child. Um, the older, <laughs> the older brother would inherit more things, and so one day the older brother comes. His name's Esau. He comes in. He's starving, and Jacob says, "You know what? I'll give you a bowl of soup, but it's going to cost you your inheritance. It's going to cost you your birthright." And Esau's like, "What good is it if I'm dead?" So he trades. He he despises, Esau despises his inheritance for a bowl of soup. Then later, whenever it comes time for Isaac, that's Jacob's dad, to do the legal blessing of the inheritance on his son, Esau, because Esau was the oldest, he came to bless Esau and give him his inheritance, even though he'd already traded away. But the thing was, Isaac was blind at this point. He couldn't see. And Esau was a really hairy man. And so what Jacob did was he covered himself in hair and went to his father and pretended to be his brother and tricked his father into giving him and blessing him with the inheritance, with the birthright. He was a trickster. You might call that even a liar. Um, but he, he also got tricked. One time he got tricked into marrying the wrong woman. That'd be interesting. He thought he was marrying Rachel. And one of the most astounding verses in the Bible, it says he had gone through the wedding and got to the tent. And it says, and behold, the next morning it says, behold, it was Leah. You're not Rachel. Then he and his father-in-law mutually trick each other through a business deal. They're trying to both trick one another. That has to do with a bunch of goats and sheep. And so Jacob tricks his father-in-law by breeding the sheep a certain way so he can pull one over on his father-in-law. It causes problems. When you trick people all the time, it causes problems. It causes problems with his father-in-law. It causes problems 
with his brother, his older brother. In fact, he's afraid his older brother's trying to murder him. He finds out his brother, his oldest brother's waiting for him. That sounds nice. Oh, my older brother's waiting for me with 400 men. Oh, that's something different altogether. This is Jacob. This is the trickster. And how many know God only blesses good people? No? You're right. It's, it's a no. Look in Genesis chapter 32. We're going to start in verse 24. I'm going to read this passage to you. This is the way God deals with this trickster Jacob. But I want you to understand that he's blessing Jacob because of who God is, not because of who Jacob is. Listen to this, because Abraham had, or God had made a promise to Abraham and to Isaac and now to Jacob. It says this in Genesis 32, verse 24. And Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. That means all night long they wrestled. And when the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go, for the day has broken. And Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. He said, trickster. He said, liar. See, the man already knew his name. Spoiler alert, the man he's wrestling with is God. God already knew his name, but he wanted jacob to confess who he was who are you well i'm a trickster okay i can work with that you're being honest then he said your name shall no longer be called jacob or trickster but israel now guys this is where the nation of israel today gets its name from from this passage right here in the bible that's so crazy to me that something that still exists in the world hundreds of miles from here still exists today because of this passage. This is where the name comes from. Now, what does Israel mean? Well, it's what he says right here in the next part. Your name will be Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then, ask, then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask me my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, for I have seen God face to face, and yet my life was delivered or spared. I saw God face to face, and he didn't kill me. It, it, don't we all deserve, isn't God holy, and we all deserve death in his sight? Because we are not holy. I mean, Jacob wrestled God, but it's kind of like when a father wrestles his son in the floor. It's not really a fight, is it? It's just kind of like, I'm teaching you how to be a little bit tough, son. Right? Isn't that what it's a little bit about? It's just for the fun of it a little bit. So here's God. He's wrestling Jacob, and he's teaching Jacob something. He said, you want to be blessed? Fine. I broke your hip. And it says from that day on, Jacob limped because of his hip. Oh, you met God? Yes, I did. And guess what? He blessed me. He blessed me. He gave me a new name. He gave me a new identity. No longer am I the trickster. Now that I've seen God, now that I know him, now I'm known as the one who strives with God. I'm the one who wrestles with God. 
What it tells us in Corinthians, it says, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. The reality is, when you give your life to Christ, you become a new person. You're new. Now let's look in John chapter 4. I, I have here written my notes, and I don't know why I wrote this, but I want to read it I, with that passage Sometimes there is a struggle to know God. And that's not really a point I want to uh, preach on today. Our, my, my topic is know God, but sometimes there's a struggle to know him. And some of us, when we meet a little bit of resistance in knowing him, we just give up. Can I tell you something? He knows the stuff you're made of. He knows whether you'll be able to push through and find him or not. Can I tell you something this morning? Push through. Push through the difficult stuff so that you can know him. The scripture promises us that, that I think I said it earlier, was that today? That if we will, we will seek him and we will find him when we seek him with all our hearts. John 4. And for context, I'm going to read some of what was last week. In verse 1 it says, now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to the town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob, who we just talked about, had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. And just so you know, if you ever have, if you have a map in the back of your Bible, you can flip there real quick. Jerusalem was like right about here in the middle of that map. And Jesus is trying to get to Galilee, which is way up here, this region way up here. And he has to travel north from Jerusalem to Galilee. Now, there's several ways he could have gone. He could have gone the coastal route, if you look at that map, up the Mediterranean Sea and around to Galilee. He could have gone the Jordan River route, the other side and up and around, and avoid Samaria. And can I tell you, a lot of Jews did this. A lot of Jews avoided Samaria because Samaria was a race of people that the Jews detested and hated. Some of you have heard the story of the Good Samaritan, or maybe you just heard the phrase Good Samaritan. And what was astounding about that parable of the, of the Good Samaritan is a man gets beat up and hurt, and all these good Jews, they come by the man, and you'd think they would help the man, but they don't. They ignore him. The only person that's willing to help the beat-up man is the Samaritan. And the reason that was shocking when Jesus said that is because Jews hated Samaritans. So why would a Samaritan help a beat-up Jew? Samaritans were considered half-Jews. And so, the Jewish people would, if they were very devout, would walk all the way around to avoid Samaria, to get to Galilee. Because if they walked through Samaria, they'd be unclean. They hated these people. Now I'm going to ask you a quick, a quick trick question. 
So hopefully next week when I ask, you'll get it right. What is the purpose of this story that we're about to read? What is the purpose of this story in John chapter 4? It's a trick question, so everyone's staying quiet. Here's the answer. It's found in John chapter 20, verse 31. John wrote the purpose for all these stories. In fact, he actually wrote, he said, actually, there's more stuff that can even ever fit in a book about Jesus. Like, I couldn't write everything. So he had to just pick and choose which stories to write about. And he picks the story. Here's why. In John chapter 20, verse 31, you should highlight, underscore, arrows at this. This is the most important verse in John chapter 20. And you thought it was 316, but it's not. John 23, 20, 31, it says this. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Why did John write this story about the woman at the well that we're about to read? Because he wants you to believe that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing in his name that you will have life. So you have to remember that as we're reading this. This isn't just a nice little Bible story. This is a story that's supposed to encourage faith in you that Jesus is the Christ. And then if you believe in him, you will have life in his name. And as I was reading this, let's, let's read through here real quick and then i'll begin to dissect this for just a moment it says a woman from samaria now remember a samaritan woman jews hated them not only that but in that culture that time men did not speak to women in public especially teachers jesus was a rabbi he was a teacher it is said even in that culture in that day and age even rabbis wouldn't even speak to their own family members that were women in public so if you had a sister or a mom or a wife and you were a rabbi, you wouldn't even talk to them in a public setting. It says, a woman from Samaria came to draw water. And Jesus said to her, give me a drink. This is shocking. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, remember, she's in disbelief. How is it that you, a Jew, asked for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For the Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. Verse 10, Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep where do you get that living water are you greater than our father jacob he gave us the well and drank from it himself as did his sons and livestock and jesus said to her everyone who drinks from this water will be thirsty again but whoever drinks of the water that i give him will never be thirsty again the water that i will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. As I read this story, it's interesting because John said, I pick specific stories to teach you about Christ. And 
sometimes when we just preach topical messages, which I enjoy doing, um, we skip stuff, we miss stuff. That's one of the reasons we're preaching straight through John. When you preach straight through something, a, a book in the Bible, you can't skip the difficult parts that you don't really want to talk about. Because there's some passages that we won't preach on hardly anymore. Like, what does the Bible say about hell? We don't want to talk about hell. What about homosexuality? We don't want to talk about that. We, we don't want to talk about this stuff. So we skip it. But when we preach straight through a passage, we have to see exactly what the Word of God says, whether we like it or not. And can I tell you, as a minister of the gospel, there's some things in this book that I don't like. But what I don't like, I have to die to myself and believe this. Right? Because this is life. This is messed up. Drew is messed up. Drew makes decisions, gets things wrong all the time. I've only been married a week, and Steph can already tell you. We, we've, what did we say this week? We're learning and unlearning, all sorts of things. Right? Um, but Drew is messed up. So when my beliefs contradicts the Word of God, I have to change what I believe to what the Word of God says, even if I don't like it. And here I find life. And so when we're looking at this, something that I'd never thought of before, never wrestled with before, was when I came to this whole thing of the woman at Samaria and Nicodemus. These are right next to each other in Scripture. And I never noticed this before. It, it actually tells us in chapter 3 that Jesus met with Nicodemus. Now, we talked about that a few weeks ago. G who was Nicodemus? He was this educated Religious Pharisee, he was a Jew. He was a great Jew. He was a leader. He was well-known. He was probably wealthy. And he comes to Jesus by night, and he says, who are you? He's, he's investigating Jesus. And Jesus and him have this long conversation, and in that we get John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that, whoever gave, or that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. And then he comes out of this discourse into this baptism thing, and he reiterates in verse 36 of chapter 3, he says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. And then he launches into the woman at the well. So I really believe these two stories are connected. Why? Because we look at Nicodemus. He was ethical because he kept the law. He was educated and he was engaged. He sought out Jesus. He was ethical, he was educated, and he was engaged in the process of finding Jesus. The woman at the well is complete opposite of that. She's immoral. We find out that she has had five husbands, and the guy she's living with now is not her husband. She's immoral. She's ignorant. She thinks she knows some stuff, but she gets stuff wrong, and Jesus has to correct her. And she's indifferent. And what I mean by indifferent is... She, she didn't seek out Jesus. Jesus just happened to be there. She just comes to the well, and there's Jesus. So here you have Nicodemus, who seeks out Jesus, and the woman at the well who just stumbles upon him. He's an educated man. She's a common woman. In fact, even Nicodemus came to her at night, and the woman finds Jesus in the middle of the day, which says who she is. Think about this. In this day and time, in this culture, it was the women's job to go gather water. 
And then we usually do it in the evening or maybe of the morning when it was cool. And they would go together. Why? Because they're safety and numbers. It was like a social thing, kind of like the way today girls go to the bathroom together. It was the same thing then, but it was like, you want to go get some water? Yeah, let's go get our water because we had to have it for the next day. So when in the cool of the evening, they would gather their stuff and they would go and gather water. But for some reason, this woman is coming alone in the heat of the day. Why? To avoid others? Because she's an outcast? Because everyone's looking down on her? Absolutely. Ladies and gentlemen, in every way, she's opposite of Nicodemus. In every way. Where he was popular and well-known, she was an outcast that everyone pushed aside. So she comes to the well in the middle of the day, and I believe John wrote it this way on purpose. He put these stories next to each other on purpose. And what does this tell us about Jesus? He's not partial. It doesn't matter If you're the most well-known man of the community or the most broken woman, he has time for you. doesn't matter if you come to him in the middle of the night or in the heat of the day, he's going to find you. He's going to engage with you. Jesus shows no partiality. He doesn't care your status. And this morning, I'll say that to you. doesn't matter where you come from. doesn't matter if this is your first Sunday in church or you've been coming to church your entire life. Jesus is here for you today. He wants to meet with you. He wants to know you. What we find is He already does know you. He knows you better than you know yourself. Really, He wants you to know Him. Remember, the title of my sermon today is Know God. We just saw how Jacob wrestled with God. He knows God. He saw Him face to face. Now let's talk about this woman at the well. She comes and Jesus says, give me a drink. And as we've talked about, this shocks her. Jesus is breaking social customs. It says that his, his disciples have gone into town to buy food. Now, I want you to think about that for a second. These are good Jewish boys. For them to go buy food in town, a Samaritan town, they're going to probably have to buy some unclean food. Jesus is just breaking all sorts of religious traditions right and left here. And she's shocked. She says, how is you, a Jew, can ask a drink from me? And then Jesus uses what she says to reveal who he is. And what I love about this is, as we'll see in verse 25, he actually says to her, like she says, I know the Messiah will come. And he tells her, like, I who speak to you am he. And what's, what's amazing about this, what we lose sometimes, is this is actually the first time Jesus declares he's a, the Messiah from his own lips. We've, we've seen the disciples do it. We've seen John the Baptist do it. But this is the first time Jesus reveals who he is from his own lips. And who does he do it to? To Nicodemus? The religious leader? No. The first time Jesus reveals who he is from his own lips is from a common, no-name woman. We don't even know who she is. There's no record of her name. (laughs) 
What I love about this is this is Jesus actively engaged in evangelism. We've been talking a lot lately as a church about going on mission, telling people about Jesus. Jesus also went on mission. Even, even when he was resting. Remember David's servant last week? What was, what was Jesus doing? He was resting. He was weary, so he was resting. But even as he was resting, he was still ministering from a posture of rest. And he uses something she can relate to, water. This is evangelism 101. You go out and you, you find someone, you relate to them where they're out. Uh, J.C. Ryle, he said it like this. He calls it gracious, a gracious act of spiritual aggression. A gracious act of spiritual aggression. You don't want Jesus. You're not even thinking about him. But I'm going to give him to you anyway. This is a gracious act of spiritual aggression. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God, I want you to underline that in your Bible. If you knew the gift of God and who it was saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. I love it. This word gift means just that. It means completely free gift. No strings attached. If you knew the gift of God, this free gift. (coughs) And she's amazed. Because the well is what? It's deep. And in the Greek, this word deep, it means deep. Historians tell us it was maybe 100 feet or 100 meters deep. It doesn't matter if it's 100 feet or 100 meters. That's deep. And as Steph and I were talking about this passage, We were talking about how the Samaritan woman was thinking just how impossible it is for Jesus to draw water. Like, what does she say? How are you going to get water? Like, you've got nothing, and it's deep. It's impossible, Jesus. It's just as impossible for her to have her spiritual thirst quenched, too, isn't it? On her own. She's got a thirst inside of her that she's been trying to quench, as we'll find out how she's been trying to quench it, from guy after guy after guy, and it still will not, there's no well that has what she needs. It doesn't matter how long the rope is, I can't get enough water to quench the spiritual thirst inside of of me, and isn't that us too? Like before we knew Jesus, there was something inside of us that was missing, and what did we use to fill it? We used, relationships if i just find the right relationship that will make that's what she was doing we we use drugs to fill that void maybe alcohol anything to make us just feel like just to quench that first thirst that void inside of me some of us use our kids We keep them busy so we won't have to think about the pain inside of us. We use our own children to quench our thirst, and that's that's bad for them. Your children should never be what you use to make yourself feel better. They need a healthy parent. All of us have a God-shaped hole inside of us, a thirsty spot that we've tried to fill with other things. And... We have a room full of people here today 
that know Jesus, and they will tell you the only time that quenched, that the only thing they ever quenched that thirst was Jesus Himself. That's why we're here today. Because Jesus, He gave us that living water. And now we no longer have to strive for those things. Money and relationships and drugs and alcohol and all those things that they never satisfy. They never satisfy. Jesus tells her plainly, everyone who drinks from this water will be thirsty again. And you know that's true. In your life before Christ, you know. And some of you this morning, if you don't know Christ, you're feeling it now. You know that that thirst is never quenched. He says, the water I give him. It says, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And, and I've always like that word welling up. It's like it just kind of wells up, right? So I looked it up in the Greek. It does mean something different than just welling up. It actually means leaping up. Like you ever seen like water that's just like, just like, like uh, we went to Yellowstone, right? And there was a geyser and that water was leaping up. It was gushing out. I think of Will, he loves this imagery of just water just exploding out of your chest. That's what it is. It's water welling up out of you. It's not just kind of seeping out of whatever. It's water that wells up out of her. And this woman understands. She says, like, I, I need this. And this is language that's actually used in the Old Testament. Can I give you a couple scriptures real quick? And, and don't turn there for the sake of time. But in Jeremiah chapter 2, it t- says this, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. And they have made cisterns or jars for themselves, but they're broken jars that can hold no water. He says, I'm the fountain, I'm the living water, and you have this jar, and you think it's great, but it's broken. Last night we were bringing some sodas into the house, and and when I opened the tailgate, they just all fell on the ground and just exploded everywhere. And so I held one of the half-empty cans up, and it's like, Addy, do you want a drink? She was like, no. No. Why? It's broken. It's, it's not right. In chapter 17, it says, O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you shall be put to shame. Those who turn away from you shall be written in the earth, for they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living water. In Psalms 36, it says, For with you, it's talking about the Lord, is the fountain of life. In Isaiah chapter 12, it says, With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. 55, it says, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. This is language that we see in the Old Testament again and again about the Lord, that He is the fountain of living water. How many have ever just been really thirsty? Like, really, really thirsty. How many have ever been hungry? Like, really, really, how many are hungry right now? Have we ever been on a fast and you just couldn't wait for that fast to end? And you're like, Lord, I know I'm supposed to be fasting to find you, but I'd really just like to find a cheeseburger right now. Like when you're really thirsty and you're really hungry, all you care about is that thing. In fact, some of you are struggling listening to my message because you're so hungry. All you're thinking about is the chips and salsa that wait for you at the restaurant just a few moments from now. 
we're hungry, we're thirsty. Jesus understands this language is what he uses in the Old Testament. But Jesus uses it in the New Testament too. If you flip over a couple pages, and we'll get to this again later, but in John chapter 6, verse 36, Jesus, he says this. It says, I'm in the wrong place completely. In 35, he says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. If you flip over to John chapter 7, verse 37, this is Jesus talking. He says, on the last day of the feast, the great day, so this is an important day, Jesus stands up and cries out. So there's all these people at this feast. This is an important day. Jesus stands up and he cries out. If anyone thirsts, I'm sure there's people like, well, I'm thirsty. Let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Where's the team? Will you join me up here today? What I love about this passage is that Jesus is revealing who God is and he's using water to do it. He's trying to show who he is. Who is Jesus? As we saw in John chapter 1, Jesus is God in the flesh. Is he not? He's the Messiah. He's the Savior. And she doesn't, she doesn't get it quite yet. Now we can look in verses 16 and on, but we're going to do that next week this is a long series today what i want you to understand is this simply first of all that jesus will meet anyone anywhere at any time no matter who you are will you stand with me the second one is this is that jesus is the only thing that can quench your thirst can i tell you he does more than just quench your thirst he does more than just say, okay, now you're not thirsty anymore, which would be nice. It would be nice if I just didn't have that hunger anymore for bad things, right? Because we know, we know when we're craving things that are harmful, things that are not right. We know what sin is. Our heart convicts us. At least it did at first. And then the more we do those wrong things, it doesn't feel so bad anymore because now we're used to doing them, right? But at one point, we knew that that was wrong. That thing that we were using to quench our thirst was wrong. It'd be nice if Jesus would just quench that thirst. And some of us, that's why we come to church. We come to church just so we can get enough. Jesus, I just want enough to... Ah, that's good. Thank you, Jesus. And we leave. Can I tell you? You haven't found Jesus. If you just come to church enough just to get a just to get enough of a taste to quench your thirst and then leave so you can come back again and just get a, like, because you get thirsty during the week. I'll go to church again and just get a little bit more. You haven't actually found Jesus. What you've found is a Band-Aid. What it says here is when you truly find Jesus, you 
get more than just your thirst quenched. What you get is rivers of living water flowing out of you to give life to the people around you. See, here's the thing. When I leave this building and other people encounter me, they're encountering someone who has life to give them. They're experiencing peace. So my, house, my home is filled with peace. Why? Not because Drew's great, but because Jesus is great and rivers of living water are coming forth from me in my home. That means we never have problems. Sometimes we do. But it's not the default state of our home. Our home is a home of peace. Because Jesus is coming out of us. Rivers of living water. When I go to the store and I encounter people in the store, there's rivers of living water coming out of me to give life to those around me. When you have an argument with that special person in your life, because you do, rivers of living water come out of you. Doesn't mean you don't mess up maybe for a minute or two, but then you're like, wait a minute, what's happening here? It's almost like this conviction comes over you. And some of you know what I'm talking about. Like you, you start to be hateful, but then in the middle of it, that, that hatefulness just starts to get drowned out. Why? Because rivers of living water come out. You're like, what am I doing? Hey, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for the way I was just acting. That's not who I am. I belong to Jesus. And rivers of living water come out of you. That's what it looks like. That's what it looks like when you've truly found Jesus. It's more than just a quench of thirst. It's a new way of living because you're a new creation. Will you bow your heads and close your eyes with me? Father, we come before you this morning, humble people. Lord, in this room, we have all sorts of people. Lord, in this room, we have people that have tasted and seen that the Lord is good, and they now have rivers of living water flowing from them. God, and we're thankful for the change that can only happen through Jesus Christ. God, we have people in this room that, Lord, they just come and they just get their thirst quenched every week. And they've not yet truly given their life to you for rivers of living water to come from them. And this morning, God, I pray that you would meet them where they're at just the same way you met the Samaritan woman. God, then we have some people in this room that have never known you, they've never tasted. Father God, I pray today would be the day. Ladies and gentlemen, there was one other time Jesus asked for a drink in the Bible, according to John. Once was right here to the woman at the well. The other time was when Jesus was hanging on a cross. He was nailed to a cross for our sin and our shame. See, all of us deserve hell on a good day. But Jesus went to the cross to take our punishment, to take our shame. He was punished. He who never did any sin, he was made to be sin so that we could be made clean and righteous. And while he was hanging there on the cross, he said, I thirst. The only other time he asked for a drink, I thirst. And he was able to get just enough of a drink so he could cry out, It is finished. I have done the work. I have, I have paid for their sin. 
and then he died. The perfect man paid a death he didn't know, but three days later, he rose from the dead. He rose from the dead. He's victorious over death. He's victorious over sin. He's victorious over any situation you're walking through right now, and he has the victory. Can I tell you, he's alive today, and he will return again. This morning, if you need Jesus, these altars are open. You need to meet him. You don't need to meet me. You need to meet him. Let him do what he needs to do you and your heart. Let's just take a moment to be still before the Lord and if anyone needs to come, these altars are open.